Welcome to the Yonse Podcast. I'm Yoko. And I'm Sachi. And we'll be your host for today's episode. As the young adult branch of Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, Nikkei Rising is here to bring you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the Yonsei Podcast. Today, we are talking to some members of another young adult group, the Young Buddhist Editorial. And our first guest is Devin Matsumoto. Devin's pronouns are he, him, and he is a settler on Muegma Ohlone land, also known as South Bay Area, California. He currently works as a youth advocate at an organization dedicated to ending the school-to-prison pipeline. His work focuses on youth intervention and prevention by offering community-based models which disrupt institutional policies that intentionally marginalize BIPOC communities. Devin is also a community organizer in San Jose Nikkei Resistors and the Young Buddhist Editorial. Within both organizations, he seeks out pathways towards healing through community building and fighting for social justice through an abolitionist lens. Uh, Really great to have you here, Devin. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Our second guest is Koki Acheson. Koki is a Yonsei on her mom's side, part of the Kumagai and Okubo families. She lives in Honolulu and works for the Coconut Rhinoceros Beetle Response, an invasive species eradication program, as an outreach specialist. She grounds her work with the CRB response in her background in environmental science, education, and Jodo Shinshu organizations. Koki looks for opportunities to build community and find abundance even within invasive species work. Thanks for being here, Koki. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so I think we're going to dive in with some background information to kind of frame our conversation going forward. So as we said in our introduction, you both are part of the Young Buddhist Editorial. Um, Could you each tell us a little bit about what your role in the Young Buddhist editorial is, and um, maybe if one of you could also give the audience a little bit of background information about how you guys started and what your mission is and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. I can maybe provide a little bit of context into the Young Buddhist editorial. Um, So the Young Buddhist editorial was started, I think, about um, two years ago in 2020, spring of 2020, right before uh, we shut down. And it was started by a group of young adult Japanese-American and mixed-race Japanese-American Jodo Shinshu Buddhists um, who were all at a youth minister's assistant retreat in Seattle at the Seattle Betsun. And so we've all known each other growing up um, through the Young Buddhist Association, which is like uh, high school-aged youth groups for young Buddhists um, or young Jodo Shinshu Buddhists. And so we all pretty much knew each other growing up. Um, even though we came from different areas, especially like around the country. And we all were there going to school in Seattle or living in Seattle at the time. And so um, that retreat provided like a great space for us to just um, talk about some of the issues that we saw. And one of the main issues was that, you know, there's this big disconnect between our generation, um, our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation um, in the Buddhist communities. And so we wanted to try to, you know, bridge that gap between those communities and also offer a space for us young people to 
really have a voice in the community because, you know, I, I guess with any Japanese American community or a lot of Japanese American communities, it's very um, elder based. Um, and, and like a lot of our elders are um, re- well respected for, for, the, for the right reasons. Um, but sometimes it may feel like our voices get silenced um, because we want to respect our elders. And so we um, wanted to, you know, create a space for us to have our voices. And then since then, we've grown into a an organization that you know I never thought we would be, um, but for the better. And so we've been doing a lot of Asian American um, social justice work. A lot of it is thanks to Casey Mukai um, and the Social Justice Committee. And so we have grown from just being, you know, this group of friends who wanted to, you know, share our writings on how we understand the Buddha's teachings um, from our, you know, own perspectives to a somewhat significant part of the Asian American Buddhist movement um, here in the in the US. And so I hope that provides a little bit of a context into um, the Young Buddhist editorial. And then maybe I can give Koki the space so I don't have to keep talking. And then I can go into mine after Koki. Yeah, one of Devin's strengths is giving space and making space. So uh, I can offer the perspective of somebody who joined the Young Buddhist editorial after its beginning foundations. I was brought on as a web manager, and I joke with Devin about this, but I thought that most of what I would do is just putting articles online, maybe helping with a little bit of the web design stuff and, I don't know, monitoring emails. But the opportunities that YBE has created for building community, um, like Devin mentioned with Casey's work with the Social Justice Committee, the workshops and connections that are made um, within people who want to be really closely involved with YBE, but also the broader community. Um, it feels really energized um, and working with a group of people who has a lot of exciting ideas, new enthusiasm, but also is grounded in this uh, similar tradition or has similar values that pull them into the organization is hugely inspiring to me. And especially throughout the pandemic um, was a real big bright spot. Yeah, um, I guess with any like newly budding organization. I think recently we've been liking to use flower analogies in YBE. Um, and so I really I really try and help wherever I can. So um, uh, mostly in like the restructuring that we're doing right now. Um, and then I think on the other end, I help with like more of the background stuff of like the administration stuff, um, our legal stuff. Devin won't say these words, but I will say uh, served as co-founder, president, fearless leader, um, definitely takes the style. He's shaking his head. You won't see that on the podcast, but takes the style of leading from the side and giving opportunities to others. But when things feel busy, um, mostly it's joyous work, but I just remember how much harder Devin is working. Um, and it really, yeah, inspires me to keep going. So I'm here as a hype woman in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> so doing research for this episode was a little bit interesting because uh, Yoko, what is your religious background? So, yeah, we wanted to touch on our own um, perspectives coming into this because uh, it kind of informs how we how we run the conversation. I totally come at anything religious from pure like ignorance. I have no religious affiliation, and my family we did not grow up um, any religion, so I feel like I have a lot to learn from you know, any conversations around this kind of stuff. I would say out of all the the organized religion that I was exposed to at all, probably Buddhism was the one that was there the most just because of 
of culturally being Japanese American and what comes with that. But yeah, I'm totally in the dark when it comes to like actually, you know, aside from like the cultural aspects, like the actual, you know, mindset uh, that is behind your guys' beliefs. So I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah. And very similar to me, my family hasn't been religious for a while, as far as I know. And I've always been like Buddhist adjacent, but never really like, yeah, myself done anything um, related to it. So we are very interested actually in what your, each of your personal kind of history or connection is with Buddhism. Sure, I can start because Devin, I would say, is really um, more closely involved with study of Dharma. But um, my family started going to actually the Seattle Buddhist Temple when I was in about second grade. So that's how a connection there. Emily Cole um, was the one who invited I know Emily. Me. Oh, my goodness. So yeah, funny. Yeah. It is a small <laughs> world. But um, yeah, I started going to a week-long summer program there that was a lot of Japanese culture-based that my mom was involved in. And then the temple activities were... Wait, was, you went to... KSP? Went to summer camp at KSP? I went to KSP! You're kidding. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. Like, I've always, like, been around, but I never, like... Like, You're we kidding. would go to the service and stuff, and I'd be like, I don't know what they're saying, but this is cool. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's so wow. funny. Okay. We can... Let's talk more later. I don't want you to have to edit yes. a whole bunch out, but that is such a small world. But anyway, so at Seattle Buddhist Temple, I started being involved with this summer program then joined campfire activities. It's not gendered Girl Scouts, basically. Um, that was the activity there. Got involved at Dharma School. And then I think my entry point to Jodo Shinshu has been cultural first, but then um, the interplay between how values and Buddhist teachings inform our culture is still you know, an ongoing question for me and something that I try to tease out where I can. Um, YBE has been helpful for that, for sure. I did go to a Buddhist high school as well called Pacific Buddhist Academy um, when my family moved to Hawaii. And quickly, my parents got really involved with the Hompa Honganji Hawaii Vetsuyan activities, including Buddhist Women's Association that my mom has now um, welcomed, I won't say roped in, me <laughs> to getting involved, but she's welcomed me to join. Um, and yeah, it, it feels like a foundation there. I think Coming back to that, those, you know, chanting or uh, gathas that we sing do feel like home to me. Um, I went to school in Denver and going to the Denver Buddhist Temple just a couple of times. It was like, wow, I can step into this place that feels really familiar, even though it's my first time here. So that's kind of long winded, but a little bit about how I've connected with Jodo Shinshu. Wow, what a small world. <laughs> um, I think my... I think I guess my background is a little bit uh, pretty much similar to Koki in that, you know, I grew up in the temple. Um, I also went to we have Nakayoshi Gakko, which is um, a Japanese American summer summer camp at the Mountain View Buddhist Temple, um, which isn't I don't know if it's like affiliated with the temple, but it's on the temple grounds. Um, so I'm not really sure how that stands. Um, but I say I, I come from a long line of Buddhists, I think. Both of my grandparents um, on both sides um, were heavily involved in their respective temples um, and then making so that means like my parents were definitely involved too, which I think is a very great thing for me because a lot of my closest friends are actually from the Buddhist temples, whether they're from um, my Mountain View Buddhist temple or like San Jose Buddhist temple or Salt Lake Buddhist temple. 
just because of the connections that my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents made through that community. Um, and so I guess my entry point into Jodo Shinshu Buddhism has always been community and cultural um, and has more recently been the Dharma side. So the teaching side of it. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have that experience of, you know, growing up with, you know, my closest friends being from, you know, the same community as me, um, because we all went to the same Lotus preschool, which is a Buddhist preschool. Um, we all played CYS or Tri-City basketball, um, which have their roots in either the San Jose or the uh, Mountain View Buddhist temples. And then we all played, you know, the competitive league, Asian league basketball, which also has their roots in the temple. Um, then we grew up doing YBA, the, the Young Adult Buddhist Association, um, our Young Buddhist Association together in high school. Um, so we saw each other like constantly. Um, and then sort of like Koki, I, I moved away for college and I went to Utah to go because my mom's from Utah. So I went to go to Utah and then there's a there's a small temple there. And so immediately, the, like the first day I was there, it was, I felt so welcomed, um, partly because a lot of them I knew growing up because I would go to Utah every summer. Um, but even though the aunties and uncles that I didn't know were so welcoming into, um, you know, helping me feel like I'm part of the community there um, and making sure that, you know, I was taken care of. Um, yeah, so it's been a very community and cultural aspect for me. And then same thing with Seattle. I moved to Seattle for a year to pursue my master's in social work and the temple there, the uncles and aunties, the the minister there, the, the, young, the young adults there really made it feel welcoming. And so um, I've... Because of that, I've been able to further my studies um, in Buddhism, and so I'm I'm currently at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, um, just trying to see you know where that leads me. Awesome, uh, it's funny. There's like we we have our discussion topics and stuff, and it's funny how they always bleed into each other so much because everything is interconnected. Um, but I did want to dive a little deeper on this. Uh, both of you, it's clear from the way you talk about it, that it, that your Buddhist identity is really tied to your cultural and racial identity. But I wanted to get a little deeper in that because it's really interesting to me. So could each of you say a little bit um, about how those two aspects of yourself kind of inform each other and what, what that kind of intersection, how that informs like maybe your broader work um, either as part of YBE or, or any other work you do? I think I'll just start with uh, one thought, and then if we need to expand or you need to prompt me more, please do. But I think one of the early opportunities that I had to differentiate the religious versus racial versus cultural identity was with KSP, because my mom was an organizer and was so strict about not calling it camp like a summer camp, because camp was such a loaded word within the Japanese American community in Seattle. And so I think that's one small story that has kind of run as a theme throughout, like we do have this opportunity to get together, but we also have this, as Japanese Americans, uh, intergenerational trauma to work through. Um, another small world thing is that I don't think they met, but my mom grew up in Utah and occasionally, super rural, so only occasionally attended this small town, um, or there wasn't a temple in the small town, so only occasionally attended the Buddhist services. But I think that her 
working through that trauma, my mom, of her parents needing to hide their maybe religious or cultural identity, but then find ways to preserve it. You know, there is definitely the Honganji cookbooks in their home. Um, definitely lots of food, I think, that persisted. But I, my mom has seemed to look for opportunities to re-engage with a Japanese identity and a Japanese-American identity and give that to me as a sense of belonging. Um, and I think that the temple space has oftentimes served as a place where I feel like I can belong. And as we in YBE now talk about inclusivity and what kind of organization we want to build, I have the question on my mind of how can we build an organization that feels very inclusive even to those people who may not have that generations of cultural background with Jodo Shinshu or with the Japanese American tradition um, while also preserving our little oases of belonging. Well, I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. <laughs> Koki always um, never like stops impressing me with, you know, everything that she says. Um, and I think so going off of this, there's this, I think within the Buddhist churches in America, I think maybe similarly the JCL has seen this too. Um, but there's a lot of questions about the future of the organization, um, whether or not it's going to be Japanese American or um, what, what role do the Japanese Americans play in the future of the Buddhist churches of America. And I think, you know, for any organization, it's, it is a vital question. But I think the way that our community is sort of handling it isn't the most culturally responsive um, in that a lot of folks are wanting to separate the the religious from the cultural, from the community aspect, um, leaving a lot of us who come to the temples for that community and culture uh, with nowhere else to go, right? Um, because I, I, from my experience in the Bay Area, um, there's no real other place to connect with Japanese American uh, culture or community outside of the temple. Um, and so if you, if, you know, you take that away, um, where else do we have to go? And so... Um, that is really what informs me um, with, you know, how do we move forward as a community with, you know, what Koki is saying with the inclusivity? How do we, you know, make that space for, you know, those who rely on it for like healing practices of intergenerational trauma, but then also how do we strike that balance with, you know, bringing other people in? And then the, the other question that leaves my mind is when we bring other people in, do we inherently silence those who are already within who, you know, might view those um, other folks as um, their oppressor? And I, um, I, I mean that in like, you know, understanding things from like a racial um, lens of like, you know, Japanese Americans have this long history of, you know, white supremacy within the organization. And so when we when white people become the leaders of our institutions, what does that mean for the Japanese American community then? And how do we interact? How do we see um, a lot of these different power dynamics in play? Um, and then I think the last thing that really has been guiding me in the last few months is something that Koki actually said. Uh, and I, I'm going to definitely butcher the um the paraphrasing here but in in regards to we get asked as young people get asked like what is the future of bca are you are you are you um are you worried about you know not having membership or anything like that and and this wasn't the direct question but koki's response was really like lifted my heart and is that our community is beyond wealthy or is wealthy beyond any monetary value. And so a lot of the a lot of the talks around, you know, how do we maintain our membership is very um, 
intertwined with capitalism. It's very intertwined with, you know, how can we pay for these things? How can we do these different things? And so our membership is viewed as a way of making money as opposed to, you know, the, the vast majority, the vast um, abundance of other things that um, we can do other than, you know, being this, you know, capitalistic tool. And so I'm not sure if that's what Koki meant, um, but with those words are really what stuck with me um, in the past few months since I've heard that, uh, since I heard that come out of her mouth. And so um, I think that's what, you know, really guides me in understanding Japanese American Buddhism uh, from this, thing that can be both and shouldn't be separated from my from my perspective that's an honor Devin that you remember that but I a little bit I think you took your own direction with it which I love even more um but I think in my response the word that really stuck out to me is abundance like thinking about the world Jodo Shinshu YBE with an abundance mindset rather than scarcity mindset in some ways it's like an indigenous technique and really prevalent in Hawaiian culture um but I, when somebody asked the question, like, how are we going to preserve the membership, our involvement? And I was like, look around this room. It's a Saturday morning and there's like 50 plus attendees at a webinar when we're sick of two years of Zoom meetings. Like everyone who showed up is showing how deep our well of resiliency and engagement runs. So yeah, it was cool. But I think thinking about abundance makes me excited for the future of all of our communities and their overlap. So Nikkei Rising, actually, we do a lot of work relating to the Japanese American experience during World War II. Um, and we were very curious about if you could talk about what the role of Buddhism was uh, during the incarceration. Yeah, I can start us off. Um, so I think for a lot of us who um, are strongly identifies, I guess, Jodo Shinshu or Buddhist in general within the Japanese American community. Uh, a lot of our history and experiences or family histories have been sort of whispers in the background of the larger Japanese American community. And so it wasn't until Reverend Duncan Ryu Ken Williams, who's a Soto Zen priest out in LA, um, released his book, American Sutra, where a lot of our whispers within our families and within our temples really became out there and was really displayed to the rest of the Japanese American community about, you know, the experiences of um, Japanese American Buddhists during World War II. Um, and so I'm really thankful for the work that he's put in. It was, I, I think it, he said it was 17 years of research that went into, um, you know, documenting the experiences of Japanese American Buddhists. And so um, it, it's it's such an honor to have been able to meet him and then also, you know, you know, read his book um, and and put our family's stories out there to the rest of the of the Japanese American community. And so a lot of what he talked about was that. Um, the, the incarceration experience wasn't just something that happened. It was something that led up to, it was built up upon. And so um, even before Pearl Harbor, they were already, the, the U.S. government was already um, surveilling the Japanese American community. And those who they were surveilling were the Buddhist priests, um, the Japanese language school teachers and other folks like that. And I want to provide some also critical context too of like understanding, you know, U.S. Japan imperialism in that too, to where, you know, Japan's policy of wanting to create soft power in the United States was still prevalent back then. And so that's why a lot of our families are here. And so um, there is that context too of like, how do we grapple with, you know, understanding that we were political pawns in Japan's um, empire stretching. Um, and so that's what I grapple with when I understand, you know, 
Buddhist priests were surveilled, Japanese language school teachers were were surveilled, um, and things like that. But I think after Pearl Harbor happened, right, the first to be rounded up were the Buddhist priests. And so I think about 90 of them were rounded up in Hawaii, at least, and sent to different uh, places. And so with that history going with, you know, everything else with like, uh, they had to take this, I don't know, it wasn't a questionnaire, but they it was like this ABC list where if you were a Buddhist, you were marked as more dangerous than if you were a Christian. Um, and so um, there was this, this ABC list of like, um, whether or not you would be um, identified as a risk to national security. Um, and then also the, the tensions between the Japanese American Christians and the Japanese American Buddhists um, were, were very high during that time too of um, the Buddhists or the Christians trying to, you know, say that, you know, the Buddhists are making it harder for us to be seen as loyal Americans. Um, and so um, lots of uh, infighting between the community um, the JCL had a role to play in the suppression of, you know, Japanese American Buddhist traditions within, you know, incarceration experience too. And I think what also gets left out is the the post World War II um, experience of Japanese American Buddhists. Um, in that, a lot of the places that Japanese Americans could go to were the temples in resettlement, and so a lot of the temples hosted um, families for resettlement there, and then. Um, even after that, you know, there's still this racial, religious, you know, persecution of Japanese Americans. And so my mom um, in like the 60s or 70s when she was growing up told me about how, you know, this one time they were all her whole family was um, at the Ogden Buddhist Temple in Utah for a, I guess, temple celebration. And, you know, shots were fired into the um, temple. And so um, they all had to hide and, you know, seek cover. And so I think, you know, this this history of, you know, Buddhism being seen as a racial identity as well, or ethnic identity, and not just a religious identity. And then we see it even now with, you know, the Vietnamese Buddhist temples being vandalized in LA um, with uh, white supremacist uh, language on it. Um, And then there was a temple in Vancouver, or I think Vancouver, um, Canada, that was just recently vandalized with a swastika on it. And so um, I think we see how or I've seen how religion and race and ethnicity aren't easily separated in the United States, even if, you know, our community leaders want to separate it. And so um, it provides a lot of context into the, you know, struggles of our ancestors who, you know, were going through all of that and then having to face, you know, other animosities from within their community who are telling them to strip away their Buddhist beliefs, to hide their identity, um, to become Christian and become American. And uh, Reverend Williams leads his book with, what does it mean to be American? Does it does it mean to be white and Christian? And so that is one of the questions that he leads with. And so I have a whole nother spew about, you know, what it is being American um, in this, you know, nationalistic space, but that's a whole nother time. But um, I don't know if Koki, do you, did you have anything else? Not about the specific history. I think I'm really appreciative that you had the, you know, facts and events uh, off the top of your head and done a lot of research because I think, for me, just thinking now about how the role of Buddhism in camps and the experience of Japanese Americans in camps has affected our families today, um, that's really on my mind. Like my mom was involved with Omoyede Project. I don't know if you're familiar in Seattle area of documenting oh, yeah. some of those stories. Yeah, yeah it is they a small to, world. To Seattle Japanese 
language school and did the presentation. So awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was in Colorado, I didn't even know that Camp Amachi was there in Colorado too, but I was able to participate in a class that was the psychology of Japanese Americans during World War II, which was pretty illuminating. And then um, want to shout out to one of our YBE participants, Toshi Steinitz, did a project called Through Our Eyes. Again, um, getting reflections from people who have those ties to YBE to um, share some more family stories or from historical research about um, the internment experience. So I think the theme that runs throughout there is what there is to uncover and what there is to preserve and how that affects our lives now and then future generations, um, how we cannot repeat the mistakes of history. So another organization I'm sure you're familiar or expect you're familiar with, like with Sudu for Solidarity, taking that the extra step to show up for other groups who are marginalized today and, you know, say that one, we didn't forget Japanese American history and two, um, declare it an injustice and that it can't happen again. Um, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of work to uncover the family and collective community histories. And even what you're doing now with this podcast is documenting our reflection as we speak about it. You know, this is the next generation's way of interpreting and next generation, you know, when your grandkids listen to this, they'll be like, wow, we in the metaverse are doing our same way of documenting, um, you know, reflecting (laughs) on what we share, the memories. I wanted to ask you guys, I feel like there's kind of two, even though it's all like super interconnected what I would imagine in terms of like your Buddhist identity impacting like your worldview when it comes to like social justice issues, there's kind of these two channels and we just covered the interplay of race and what your family has been through and how that connects to being Buddhist, how that kind of informs your perspective. But I was wondering if there was anything you had to say about like um, the actual teachings of Buddhism, how that maybe informs um any social justice work you guys do i feel like there's probably a lot to say about that yeah and i think even within that um branch of the buddhist teachings there's another two branches of the institution and then the actual teachings um because with any organized religion the institution is always going to play a role in whether it's suppressing or advocating for those social justice issues um but i think for me as far as the teaching aspect um, one of the teachings, or it, it was, I think with the founder of our school of Buddhism, Shinran Shonin wrote um, in his, uh, one of his works was that, you know, the mind to aspire for Buddhahood is the mind to, to liberate all sentient beings. And so um, to become a Buddha is to be, or to become a Buddha is to become, is to um, liberate all sentient beings or all beings. Um, and so I think for me, that is a, that is a huge role in, you know, being involved in social justice. Buddhism is that, you know, if we want to be from my perspective, if I want to be a Buddhist, um, if I want to practice the teachings, it doesn't mean that it's my liberation, it's everyone else's liberation. And so, um, the other, the other aspect of it too, is that, you know, there's this other teaching of the bodhisattva or um, those who are like the closest to attaining Buddhahood. What they do is they delay their Buddhahood in order to liberate everyone else. And so it's that sort of you first, me second 
um, sort of idea of liberation, that we all have to be liberated together before I can have liberation for myself. And so I think those are some of the key teachings that I've come to understand. Um, that's what's been really guiding me through my studies at IBS, um, because, you know, they always want academic doctrinal groundings for any action that you do. And so I think from an academic standpoint, that is what I'm uh, leading towards um, right now. And then I'll approach it from the perspective of just showing up, having a lot more to learn about my own personal deep dive and research into the Dharma, but reciting the golden chain of love, which I think is a pretty accessible entry point to a lot of young Dharma school students, elementary students. Um, the line, I will try to be kind and gentle to every living thing and protect all who are weaker than myself. Um, is social justice to me. I think the only issue I have with it was the weaker word. Um, and I'm hoping that's just a mistranslation or different translation. But after saying something like that so many times and starting to internalize it, it takes me a long time to process words and concepts, but something that's been with me, you know, for most of my growing up, I feel like after you internalize that, then it becomes part of your daily practice. And I, yeah, of course make mistakes and I'm not not living up to that every day. Devin and Koki, how old are you guys? I am, uh, I'm 24, I think. I'm 25. <laughs> oh Mid-20s. Can't play in the early 20s anymore. <laughs> so young. And you two, are, like, just the words I'm listening come out of your mouth are just, like, leaving me so awestruck with your wisdom. <laughs> like, I'm learning so much from just listening to this conversation. <laughs> Well, I think it's a really cool thing that you guys have, have built. Um, and we are so happy that you spent your time with us today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was so fun. I love hearing Devin talk and all of your questions to facilitate that. And I'm really excited about the work you're doing. And to make the connection that you're at K KSP. That's such a small world. But yeah, yeah it was such a, such a delight to join today. Thank you so much. Yeah, same. Thank you so much for having us. And I always love hearing Koki um, talk. And I got to hype Koki up because Koki is always hyping me up. And I'm never hyping Koki up. So this is my hype up for you, Koki. Keep doing the great work. And then also thank you to the Nikkei Rising team. Um, I really love seeing your guys' work out there. Um, and thank you for having us. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to keep an eye on the Yonsei feed for upcoming episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nikkei Rising for podcast updates. And be sure to check out the Young Buddhist Editorial's Instagram at Young Buddhist Editorial and their website, www.youngbuddhisteditorial.com. To listen to all of seasons one, two, and three, you can find the Yonsei podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages website. The Yonsei podcast is made by Hiro Adeza, Michelle Hecker, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, Matthew Wisebly, and Sachi Koide, with theme music by Michelle Hecker. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei.